0: Five hundred years before Columbus, a Viking woman named Gudrid sailed off the edge of the known world. She landed in the New World and lived there for three years, giving birth to a baby before sailing home. Or so the Icelandic sagas say. Even after archaeologists found a Viking longhouse in Newfoundland, no one believed that the details of Gudrid's story were true. Then, In 2001, a team of scientists discovered what may have been this pioneering woman's last house, buried under a hayfield in Iceland, just where the sagas suggested it could be. The excerpt I've just read is from an excellent book titled The Far Traveler, Voyages of a Viking Woman by Nancy Marie Brown. Today, you'll get to hear my conversation with Nancy about her book, and the fascinating character of Gudrid, who is featured in the Vinland Sagas. Nancy Marie Brown has studied Icelandic literature and culture since 1978, and was formerly the editor of the award-winning magazine Research Penn State. Today's episode is all about Norse exploration, women of the Viking Age, and the archaeology that supports our current understanding for both of these topics. Before we get into my conversation with Nancy, I want to tell you that we've recently partnered with Medieval Warfare Magazine as a way to support this podcast. Medieval Warfare is truly the highest quality history magazine dedicated to the warriors and weapons of the Middle Ages. Every issue features specially commissioned artwork and original maps that bring medieval combat to life. If you've ever wanted to support the history of Vikings, you can now do so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare, which is only 10 bucks every 6 months. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as The History of Vikings will receive a commission which goes directly back into the show. You can also get a 10% discount off of your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Without further ado, Here's my conversation with Nancy Marie Brown. Nancy Marie Brown, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Noah. Good to hear from you.
0: Well, I'm so glad we could get you on the show. Very excited about our topic of conversation today. Uh, You wrote two books, one nonfiction and one fiction titled The Far Traveler, Voyages of a Viking Woman. Now, students of the sagas will be familiar with the main character, Gudrid, the far traveler of this book. But for those who are not, could you just sort of introduce us to this, this traveler, this Gudrid, who is featured in both of your books?
1: Well, Gudrid is the daughter of Thorbjörn, so she is Gudri the Thorbjörn Doctor, which I've had to practice enough that my friends in Iceland do not laugh at me, and she is really the most well-traveled woman of her time that we know of. She appears in two sagas, the Saga of Eric the Red and the Saga of the Greenlanders, and the two versions of her story aren't quite the same. In one, she is poor when she gets to Greenland because she's been shipwrecked, and the other she is very, very rich. And one she marries two times, another she marries three times. So she's kind of a, a mystery, an enigmatic character. Um, but as you look into the sagas and the more that uh, more you have to kind of read between the lines, you can see that she was herself an explorer. She was a person who really put together one of the most important explorations of the Viking Age when they went to North America from Greenland and stayed. For probably at least three summers, maybe longer. And her ship of the three ships that went was the only one that made it back from North America. So if we didn't have her, we might not even have, you know, stories of the Viking explorations of inland. So she's a very important character and a very interesting one because she was quite a young woman. She was in her teens, probably when she married and and uh, went, uh, on this expedition. And as I said, she was very much in a leadership role. She was organizing things. It was her second attempt to get to North America. She had um, been born in Iceland and uh, lived on Snæfellsnes, so the western tip of Iceland. And her father was a good friend of Erik the Red. So when he decided to leave Iceland and go to Greenland, He was given a farm by Eric the Red, at least in one of the versions of the story. In the other version, her father dies before she gets to Greenland, but she is then taken under the wing of Eric the Red. And she marries uh, one of Eric's sons, Thorstein. So she is the sister-in-law of Leif Erikson. So when they hear the stories of this fabulous land that uh, Leif Erikson has discovered in the West, Uh, Gudrid and her first husband, Thorstein, decide to set out and find it and settle there. But they don't make it. They, um, as the saga says, are tossed about at sea all summer. They finally make it back to the other settlement in Greenland, the western settlement. And there, Gudrid's husband and all of the crewmen die. The next summer, Gudrid brings her bones back to Eric the Red's house at Bratisliv. And they are buried in the church there. And one of the really exciting things about the uh, excavations at Bratilith is that when they excavated, they not only found the church, but they found the graveyard. And there was this collection of bones from the right time period, all jumbled up together with the head beautifully lined up facing east. These might have been Gudrid's husband and his crewmen, which we could possibly prove with DNA, but nobody has done that yet. So then uh, Gudrid is living in Greenland, a a young widow. She has inherited a ship from her father and her husband, and she remarries. She marries this Icelandic merchant, uh, Thorfinn Karlsefni, And the two of them get talking, and they decide to go off and find Vinland. And they do. They take Carlsefni's two ships from Iceland and Gudrid's ship from Greenland. They have a joint Icelandic Greenlandic uh, group of people and they sail off. Actually, they go north along the coast of Greenland, which keeps them out of the worst of the weather. They cross over to Baffin Island and then come south and all of the information we have is that they end up at Lanzo Meadows, which is where we found the only um, archaeologically attested Viking settlement in North America. And there is a, a wonderful sign there that a woman was in that group of people at Lansome Meadow because there is a spindle whorl. And we believe that the women were mostly in charge of doing all the textile work. And the person who was using the spindle whorl was po- probably... A woman who was spinning yarn. So I like to think that that was Goodrid. Of course, we can't prove that part, but it fits so beautifully with the saga. And then they stayed in North America for three years. Uh, Goodrid had a son named Snorri. They traveled around, we think, at least through the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And there's there's several theories about where they may have ended up, how far south they went, Currently the thinking is that they probably met the people they called the Skrylings, which one of that means skin wearers, which were Native American people. Uh, They met them at uh, somewhere along the Miramichi River Valley in New Brunswick, because that links up with all of the different resources that the sagas mention. Uh, They had tall trees, they had grapes, they had salmon and they had a great population of native americans and the miramichi river valley at that time was the largest population of native americans in the viking age Uh, one of the neat uh, archaeological finds in lansa meadows is that they found butternuts which is a kind of white walnut and the farthest north that the butternuts ever grew is this part of the miramichi river valley the question is, how could they have gotten to Lansom Meadows because all the currents go in the wrong direction at this time? And the answer is that they probably came by ship, by Viking ship. So this is work of Brigida Wallace, who was the head of the uh, archaeological project at Lansom Meadows for many years. After that, Gudrid, as I said, made it back to Greenland. She and Thor- uh, Thorfinn Carl Zefni and the people on the one boat made it back. Two boats were lost. That's not a very good uh, ratio. Two out of three were lost at sea, but Gudrid made it back. Uh, they went on from Greenland to Norway. They sold whatever uh, products they had brought with them. Became fabulously rich, and returned to Northern Iceland to Skagafjörður, where Thorfinn Karlsefni's people had come from. His mother was then living. And she did not get along with Goodrid, the story goes, so they bought their own farm. Instead of living at his childhood home of Rainy Nest, they bought a farm at Glumbire. That's about halfway down the valley of Skagafir. And I was invited to join an archaeological dig at Glumbire in 2005. Actually, I learned about it in 2002, and I pestered the archaeologists for three years until I was allowed to join as a volunteer when we uh, uncovered the walls of a Viking Age longhouse at Glumbire that could be gudrid's house. It's the right age, it's in the right place. The saga says that she and Thorfinn Carlsef built build a house there. Um, but of course, again, this is something you can't prove. The subject of the archeological dig was to test a new remote sensing um, protocol using finding remote sensing and soil sampling. And this is now ground-penetrating radar, which is being used extremely um, often in Viking Age archaeology. has really allowed us to discover many, many things under the ground without digging. But the year that I was working with the team, we were just trying to, to test how you can see on the remote sensing the difference between stone foundations and turf walls. And so we just dug down to the top of the turf walls and the excavation hasn't been reopened. So we don't really know if there are any objects on the floor of that house that could have been Gudrid's own objects. So the first book that I wrote combines Gudrid is portrayed in them and how women are portrayed in them with uh, the information about archaeology and how our understanding of the Viking Age is changing as our archaeological techniques have improved. So I did two things uh, as a science writer. I have a, I have a training as a science writer, and I have also a degree in medieval literature. So I got to combine everything into that book.
0: Indeed, that's, that's fascinating. Well, Nancy, what I'm very curious to learn about is this. Despite the differences in the accounts within the Vindland sagas, what role did women have during the, the Viking Age in exploration and uh, exploring the new world and, and making it to the new world? And I'm deeply fascinated by this, this notion because I feel like the answer has the potential to greatly change our current understanding of the Viking Age, and certainly the role of women and the significant parts they had to play.
1: Well, one of the fun things that I realized as I was reading the sagas, the two sagas, the two Vinland sagas are not very long. They're not really very well written. They seem to me like they are sketches from you know, a writer's notebook. There's a lot of stuff missing. They have folklore motifs that don't hold together. They're Plots are kind of difficult to figure out sometimes. So they're not exactly my favorite sagas as literature. But as you compare them, and we have two sagas that essentially talk about the same thing in different ways. So you can compare them. And when you do, you find that the things they are leaving out all have to do with Gudrid and her motivation, her abilities, uh, her skills, her leadership. You know, you'll learn in the saga that Thorfinn Karlsefni, her husband, had a son when he was in uh, North America. You do not hear in the saga whose child this was, who was the mother. And yet if you look at every you know genealogy after that, Gudrid is the mother of Snorri, who is the son of Thorfinn. So we know she was there. The saga doesn't even say she was there when the child was born, but of course she was there. So when you start looking at what have they left out, what have they assumed that their readers already knew or their listeners already knew, what do they think they don't even have to tell us? Well, one thing is that when Gudrid's father died and her first husband died, She inherited because she was the only person related to them. She was the only person who could inherit from her father. So she owned a ship. That's not brought out in the saga, but she owned a ship. The ship that went to North America could only have been hers. Uh, The question as to whose idea it was to go to North America, she did this twice. She did not have A good voyage the first time. They were—they must have run out of fresh water. They were at sea all summer. The saga says so. This could be three months. Uh, They got sick. By the time they got back to land, all the men died. Why did the only woman survive? I don't know. Maybe they gave her the food. Maybe they gave her the water. Maybe she was just extremely tough. But if you look at what we think about Viking age women, we think that they stayed at home we think that they took care of the household while the men went off adventuring. So if that was the norm, she didn't have to go when Thorfinn Karsefni decided to go to North America. She didn't have to go. But the saga very clearly says that she and Thorfinn talked about it, and they decided to go. I read that as saying she convinced him to go. You know, she said, I have a ship I can add to this expedition. I know something about the route. I have studied this. I think we should go. Now, When Leif Erikson discovered North America, he didn't even land. He just saw the place. He didn't stay there. Well, actually, he did. I'm sorry. He built a house. He stayed there one winter, but then he left. He didn't explore, is what I meant to say. He just saw it. He spent the winter. He came home and talked about it. Well, she was the one who said, we have to go and see, you know, what kind of resources are there? One of the problems of living in Greenland and in Iceland at that time was they did not have tall enough trees to be able to build their own ship. They had to go to Norway to get a ship. So what you know, a wonderful concept it would be is if, if they could have their own land that had tall trees and build their own ships and not be dependent on Norway. So that would have been a good reason to go in that direction. Uh, Unfortunately, they found that the dangers of going from Greenland to North America ruled out any advantage of being able to build your own ship in North America. If you have expeditions in which two out of three ships are lost at sea, that doesn't really inspire more people to go and you didn't have a very big population in Greenland to start with, you could not afford to lose a hundred or so young, you know, strong men and women on those ships and do that more than a few times. So it turned out that it wasn't practical, but it could have been.
0: How do you think we should understand women during the Viking Age? If you and I were to travel back in time, what would we see in Viking Age society? I mean, Your book, of course, talks about the remarkable story of a a Viking woman who traveled all the way to North America, but even those women who were at home had monumental responsibilities. I know one that is referred to often enough is the creation of the sail for the Viking longship. I think I remember reading somewhere that it took over four years to construct a uh, sail for a Viking longship. Using the wool of something like 200 sheep. So, I mean, you know, whether they're at home or whether they're traveling, they're doing these remarkable things. How do you think we should view women of the Viking Age?
1: When I wrote uh, The Far Traveler, that came out in in 2007, this idea was very, very new that the women had provided the sales. And in fact, the research that you're referring to uh, was only done a year or two before. Um, my book came out, and I interviewed uh, the women who actually recreated a sail and figured out how long it took to clean and hard and spin all that raw wool. It is a million feet of thread. And it took these two women. One of them was doing it for her doctoral dissertation. I, I thought, wow, this is really... Um, <laughs> A crazy uh, dissertation idea. Um, it took her four and a half years, two women, you know, trying to, to figure this out. Now, she says, you know, once you get good at it, it, it wouldn't take quite as long. But this was an enormous amount of labor. It was probably equal to building the ship what, to make the sails, because you had to have a spare sail, too, or at least some spare sail cloth with you. And we do think, uh, even though we have been changing our ideas over the last 20 years of you know, what was gendered in the Viking Age, we'll get to that later, uh, we do still think that women were in charge of the textile work. Uh, for one very obvious reason, that textile work is something that you can interrupt often when you have to take care of children. You can stop to nurse the baby, you can stop to do you know to grab the child who's about ready to burn himself and you don't lose anything in your work it's not like i mean you're in the house you're near the house and as long as you remember the pattern you were working on you don't damage your work by stopping for 15 minutes or an hour or a day or whatever so it textile work has always been seen to be one of those basic functions that works very well with uh, taking care of children and women mostly had to do that. But it was extremely possible. You would not have had the Viking Age if you didn't have sails. Uh, That was the sail that allowed them to do the exploring that they did West, you know, especially allowed them to get to Iceland and to Greenland and to North America, allowed them to sneak up on, on the British Isles before anybody was ready for them, uh, going to the east, the sail was also important to get through the Baltic Sea, not so much on the Russian rivers. It was one of those basic technologies that really did create the Viking expansion. And if you think that the women were in charge of this, and they could say no. Uh, Leif Erikson may not have gone back to North America because he didn't have anyone to make him a sail. Who knows? There are you know, other, other reasons, of course, that he may not have gone, but the idea that you needed to have this workforce behind you and that it was a female workforce was, I think, very important. Uh, when we talk about the roles of women in the Viking Age, and this has especially been something that I've been working on for the last five years, I think we have to stop thinking about Uh, male roles and female roles, or what men did and what women did. From what I have been reading and studying, it's much more likely that the jobs were divided in terms of skill level, uh, physical ability, mental ability, uh, authority, and other qualifications. So if you were a very... um, okay, take me, I get seasick, I would not be the person to lead a Viking expedition by sea. Um, However, I'm very good on horses, so maybe I would be doing the work with animals. I think we have to think about the values of the people in the Viking age, you know, what was valued, and one thing that was very highly valued was something that uh, Gudrid the Far Traveler had in spades, and that was courage. This woman got onto an open boat and crossed the North Atlantic eight times, and there was no reason that she had to do this. She was never forced to go along. She was, well, perhaps she was forced when her father took her, but she may have been able to get out of that too because she had a uh, offer of marriage in Iceland. But she herself made the decision several times to get back in that boat. If you if you combine the sagas, she may have been shipwrecked twice, and yet she still got back on that boat. She wanted to go places. She wanted to see things. When she was a grandmother, she took her last voyage, and that was to make a pilgrimage to Rome. So this in- requires going from Iceland to Norway or England, and then to actually walk the pilgrimage route across continental Europe down to Rome. Now we know Viking women did that because we have their names in at least one register in a monastery on the way. And she made it back. She went all the way down to Rome. She went all the way back again as a grandmother of at least 40 years old, maybe older. We don't really know. So she was extremely hardy. She was courageous. She was very good with logistics. She had a very good sense of direction, probably a good navigator. There were all kinds of things that she may have excelled at that the saga never tells us uh, in so many words.
0: I'm curious about your process of writing this book. You know, most of the nonfiction books out there. That happened to be about the Viking Age. Seem to be just sort of an overview of the whole period. You might have a, a chapter on mythology, another chapter on the British Isles, another chapter on Francia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you've really, I mean, you focused on one character and her journey in your book, and that's something that you don't see much of in books written about the Viking Age. You must have had to do an immense amount of research to bring this book to life, and I'm curious. Really, how did you first sort of become acquainted with the story of Gudrun, and then how did you go about, you know, telling it? I mean, what sort of research had to be done to make this happen?
1: It's very interesting, because this was the first uh, book that I wrote about the Viking Age. I've been interested in the Viking Age for many, many years, all through college, studied the Icelandic sagas, went to Iceland, but... I got a job out of college, so I was working for a research magazine at Penn State University. Members at Penn State, there are 2,500 faculty members doing research at Penn State, so I could pretty much write about anything that interested me, and it qualified for this magazine. And one day I get a phone call from a professor of anthropology who says, I was in Iceland this summer, and guess what we found? We found a Viking Age longhouse. And so you know, I was absolutely delighted to write about his research project for uh, the research magazine and, and to find out everything I could. And I asked him, Paul, what is the possibility that I could join the DIG as a volunteer? And so he put me in touch with the principal investigator, who was John Steinberg, who was now at the University of Massachusetts. And uh, he was then in California. So, I flew out to California, and I got to know John interviewed him a couple of times about the project. Uh, he said that yes he he does accept volunteers and that he would find you know a job for me. I'd have to pay my way to get there, but put me up with the other uh, students that were uh, with him, so you know I would share rooms with the grad students and um, he put in a grant proposal, and a couple of years later, you know he he finally was able to do the work that um, that he could include me on. And so I got a call and I went off to Iceland to spend five weeks pretty much standing in the rain carrying mud from one side of the yard to the other. Because I was not a trained archaeologist, there was a lot of things I could not do. But one thing I could do was to carry buckets of dirt. So... That was my my fun summer. Uh, It didn't rain the whole time. I'm used to Iceland and it's rain. So I had a wonderful, wonderful summer. And they taught me quite a lot of archaeology to the point that I was actually allowed to use my trowel by the end of it and excavate uh, what seems to have been the garbage pit where the people who lived in the house after Gudrid died threw the ash from their fire. Um, I still remember the day that I ran across the the uh, archaeological site and said to uh, one of the other uh, lead archaeologists, uh, Doug. Doug, what size is a Viking spade? And he looks at me like, "Are you nuts?" And he says, "Oh, about ten centimeters." And I said, "I've got one uh, spade cut because this sort of circular pit that I had been told to dig all of the ash out of had these little." side cuts in it that perfectly matched the dimensions of what we think was a Viking Age spade. So I mean, that was the highlight of my summer as an archaeologist was finding where somebody had dug a little bit of dirt so they could dump their garbage. We didn't find any, you know, beautiful gold and silver objects. We didn't find any spindle whorls. We were still at the top, you know, the roof level pretty much of the house. But I got really excited because I found where they had dug their garbage pit. But I learned a lot about Viking Age archaeology that summer. And by reading everything that I could get my hands on, I found that I had to, I had to make a list for a school presentation that I did for a high school uh, one time on this. I counted up everything I read. And if you just consider books and journal articles to be the same thing, I had 350 sources for this book. Plus, you know, five weeks on my knees in the mud, plus probably a year and a half of traveling around and interviewing other uh, Viking archaeologists. For instance, I went to Denmark and met the specialist on Viking Age ships and got to travel on a ship. I went to no, uh, Newfoundland and interviewed the archaeologists there and saw Lansa Meadows and all, um, you know, not only the artifacts, but the reconstructions there. I did more research in Iceland. I went to Norway, saw the Viking ships there, went to Greenland and and traveled to the two farms that, that Goodrid was supposedly uh, living at. So I did Oh, also Scotland, went to Scotland and saw some things. So I had to travel around quite a lot and interview a lot of people in order to um, bring her life, you know, bring her life back to life, I guess you could say, bring her back to life, um, including the, the uh, textile specialist at the University of Copenhagen who um, pretty much walked me through the steps of building a sail. So I could build a turf house, I could build a sail, I could build a ship. I mean, all in theory, I can't do these things actually practically. Um, I studied how Christianity affected uh, Viking uh, society, you know, brought together a whole lot of things. When I first proposed this book to a publisher, however, I really thought that the story was the archaeology, that I was going to use the story of Gudrid to show how Modern archaeology was changing and allowing us to learn things about the Viking Age because I had just spent, you know, let's see, by then it was probably 15, 20 years working as a science writer. So science writing was what I knew how to do. And the editor who bought the proposal said, I really like this idea, but can you turn it inside out? Can you tell me the story of Gudrid and just use archaeology? To prove your points, and I kind of felt like somebody had given me this great gift. You're going to let me write about a character from a saga. You're actually going to pay me to do this. You know, this was this was wonderful, and it worked. You know, it. it uh, you know, the book was well received when it came out, and I've been able to continue writing about the Viking Age and about uh, sagas, and about Iceland, which became a hot topic. Uh, so it was really, you know, a wonderful kind of you know, epiphany that really you think other people are interested in this too, not just me. <laughs> and yeah. that turned out to be true. Um, one, of the, one of the really nice uh, recent developments of the story of Gudrid is all the spin-off that I have seen over the last 12 years, some based on my book or that my book has been able to contribute to, uh, some just uh, based on the sagas, but bringing out the story of Gudrid. I know of an opera that's based on um, the Vinland sagas, and the, uh, when he was writing the libretto, the the uh, composer sent it to me and said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. I think you need to add Freitas. And and he added Freitas and and made a, a stronger story. I took Freitas out of Gudrid's saga because I think she's imaginary, but You can read it the other way. And then most recently, I was interviewed by an Icelandic film crew who have made a documentary of the story of Gudrid the far traveler. And I was one of 05 or 06 people to be interviewed uh, for this documentary. And it's co-produced by the BBC and will eventually appear on PBS, which will bring the story of Gudrid to you know, a lot more people in America. And it's just really exciting to see that this young woman, I mean, she really was less than 20 when she did her, her exploring, that this young woman is inspiring uh, so many people a thousand years after she died. Um, and that I had some, some part in, in bringing her back and bringing her history back to life.
0: That's wonderful. And uh, I greatly look forward to that documentary. I mean, I'm a huge fan of PBS myself. So that is something I'm looking forward to, as I'm sure many of the listeners are as well. Well, Nancy, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. On the podcast today, and I'll, I'll put a link to the Far Traveler Voyages of a Viking Woman in the description of this episode. Uh, the first book of yours that I actually read was The Song of the Vikings, sort of dealing with Snorri Sturluson, and I absolutely loved it. Now, I'm not sure how much you're able to give away, but um, are there any other future writing projects that fans of the Viking Age can look forward to uh, reading of yours?
1: Well, I said that I've been spending the last five years thinking about the uh, question of of women's status in the Viking Age. And my book on the Birka Warrior Woman, BJ581, will be coming out next year from St. Martin's. It's now being called The Real Valkyrie. Mm -hmm. So that will be out, I think, next May, possibly next June. We are just heading into the production, uh, the publishing uh, end of things. So that will be out, and uh, I'm making a case that women could be warriors in the Viking Age. So we'll see how that goes.
0: Wow. A fascinating subject indeed, and, and we all look forward to that. Well, Nancy, thank you so much again for joining me on the podcast today.
1: You're welcome. It was nice talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you've enjoyed today's show and would like to support the podcast, you can now do so. By signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare Magazine. For only $10 every six months, you will receive bi monthly issues of, in all honesty, the best history magazine on the market. In addition to this, you'll be directly supporting the podcast. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission. You can also get 10% off your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Thank you so much for listening. Join us here again for another episode.